Welcome to our latest broadcast of Smoke and Mirror, How Barbecue Reflects America. I'm your host, Christopher Tidmore. And ladies and gentlemen, we started out this entire journey about a year and a half ago to do a documentary, as we've noted, about what could be called the first U.S. Open of barbecue that was going to happen in New Orleans. Here at Stateside and Productions, we looked at this first time a truly competitive competition was happening by points from different regional areas. And we said, you know, let's do something about competitive barbecue. And lo and behold, did we open up a hornet's nest of what is barbecue, what are the traditions about it, and how barbecue reflects America. We've gone all over the country talking to experts on barbecue, looking at its roots, looking at its history, looking at its modern controversies. And we're about to come out with the documentary, of course, before the coronavirus it kind of delayed everything. And of all the people that we spoke to, one of the first becomes one of the most predominant. You can see his clip at our website, smokeandmirrormovie.com. That's Jim Early, the founder of the North Carolina Barbecue Society, and he's joining us by phone link. Jim, I want to start off. You're the one who first defined for us the idea that barbecue is a very specific thing, not only historically, but in its, its modern practice, that a lot of people do things, as you talk about in your clip, that they call barbecue, but it's not actually barbecue. And can you talk about that a little bit, if you would? Surely. You can call most any concoction you come up with, whether it's in a crock pot, on a stove, in a stock pot, on a grill, in a smoker, you can call it barbecue. And in North Carolina, barbecue is a noun outside of North Carolina. It's a verb, like putting something on the barbie or cooking hot dogs or hamburgers, barbecuing. And that's not barbecuing. In North Carolina, it's pork and it's a noun. And you're not the only person. One of our other experts, Dr. Howard Conyers, has much the same uh, idea. He does the whole pig barbecue. He's one of the, the true barbecue traditionalists. And, but you took it a step further, and you created the North Carolina Barbecue Trail. People from all over the world come to visit these 21, 22 restaurants across North Carolina that actually barbecue with no electricity, no gas to finish, it, it's in the ground. It, it, these very specific specifications have got to be in business at least 20 years. And you help create this. And tell, me, tell us how hard it is for someone to qualify as a restaurant with true barbecue in North Carolina on this trail. Well, when I wrote the book that Pulitzer Prize people have been kind enough to call the best barbecue book ever written, the name of it is The Best Tar Heel Barbecue, Manny Oda Murphy. That was a 4,000-plus-hour project. The goal was to go to each of the 100 counties in North Carolina and ferret out all the best barbecue places in every county and write a book. I did that. There's only one place I missed that I would have included after I got the book to publisher. In the course of doing that, there were four surprises. One was that North Carolina only had less than 30 Barbecue places still cooking the old-fashioned way, low and slow over live coals with a direct drip from meat to live coals, which just happens to be the FDA definition of barbecue. So to honor these good folks who were still doing it that way and having to pay and train a pitmaster, which takes about two years, uh, having to pay uh, money for wood and charcoal oak is the least expensive mm -hmm. wood they use 
hickory is the most expensive, having to pay higher insurance for having flame in a building, uh, having to have scrubbers in the chimney to prevent creosote and chimney fires, having to have a filter to, because of the environmental people and because they make smoke, having to work 16-hour days, the soot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They still have to sell their sandwich or plate competitively with the people down the street that cook with electricity or gas. In my opinion, and this is shared by many, that's fine. You can cook with electricity or gas, but you do not have barbecue. You have roast pork. You can put barbecue sauce on it and call it barbecue. You can put barbecue sauce on wood chips and call it barbecue. But real barbecue is low and slow, direct drip, meat, cold. So to honor those folks that were going through these great efforts and 16-hour work days, I designed the North Carolina Barbecue Society Historic Barbecue Trail. It initially had about 22 people on it, 22 pits. They have come and gone. It's not carved in stone because some of the pits that were originally on it, on the trail, in the dark of night, built a shed out back and start cooking with electricity and gas and, quote, finishing, close quote, in the morning. Some were, not all, but some were doing that. How did you uncover that that some had, that had been... Because I have people that check on these pits for me. I can't go all over the state every month and see what they're doing, but I have people... Really? that check on them for me and I you know when I learned from a guy that put the gas in for a noted pit and for them to cook out back he called me good lord clandestine so when these people cook with electricity or gas then when they bring the meat in in the morning and break it down they'll save by the uh, fat, skin, gristle, etc., and then about 10 o'clock in the morning, they'll light the old pit and put that on and get that good smell going across the parking lot for the luncheon crowd. And they've got wood, cut wood, stacked in front of the building. So it's like I was jokingly telling one of my friends, it's kind of like great sex. If you think it's going to be, you're more apt to think it was. If you think you're going to eat pit-cooked barbecue and you smell that smell and you see that wood and you taste that sauce, which they're acclimated to, you're more apt to think you ate pit-cooked barbecue. Well, without getting into the issue of sauce, which is itself a controversy in barbecue experts all over the country and um, what they're arguing about, Liz Williams, the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, who has quoted you and who has examples of barbecue from all over the, the South, basically, and, th- and the central states, along, along with a true pit barbecue for a whole pig in the back of her museum. One of the things she's pointed out is we're losing true barbecue locations each year for two reasons. One, we lose them. I mean, it's you're not considered a real barbecue location to burn down once or twice sometimes, and that's the joke about it. But the more important one is the the children and grandchildren of people who had the great barbecue traditions don't want to work 16 to 18 hours a day over hot coals six to seven days a week 
they actually go to college and do this, and so there's nobody to take up the traditions. And I know that's something you've confronted and tried to fight with your school. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's rare that after the icon that founded the barbecue pit, whose name it bears, and who was the tutsure of barbecue for that particular pit, when they age to the point that they're not being active, the pit ultimately comes into the hands of children. Some survive that transition, but if it goes to grandchildren, rarely does it survive. They don't want to work those kind of hours. They don't want to put in the sweat equity that built that into an iconic barbecue pit. You can't hire people to do that. And I'm not slamming the younger generation, but they don't want to work like that. And it's hard to get the people that founded these places tell me it takes at least two years to train a pit master to leave the pigs if you're east of Chapel Hill to the coast or the shoulders if you're west of Chapel Hill to the mountains, to leave the pits in charge of this young person and sleep peacefully at night because I heard so many war stories, well, actually horror stories, coming in and finding somebody in the corner with an empty whiskey bottle and the pigs cooked on one side and novice Pitmaster was passed out drunk, uh, setting the place on fire, et cetera, et cetera. Good Lord. So when the person with the passion to do the 16 hours, six days a week, is no longer in charge, things tail off pretty quickly. Seen that across right. the board. That's something you've been trying to fight. That's what I was getting in. The North Carolina Barbecue Society, which of course you founded, Jim Early, has begun a cooking school and, and, and it's become world renowned. Uh, it is shut down because of coronavirus right now, but it's, it's it, it, trying to keep these traditional techniques of barbecue, the true barbecue, going. Can you tell us a little bit about the school? I founded the schools 12 years ago. And we do, for the last 11 years, we've done three cooking schools a year, one in the middle of North Carolina, right outside of Winston-Salem, in uh, the weekend after Mother's Day, uh, one in the mountains at uh, Sugar Mountain Ski Resort, third weekend in July, because it's beautiful and it's green and lush, and especially the Floridians, because it's a little warm in Florida in July. <laughs> Just a little Love bit. Love to come up and enjoy our school. I don't know why the people from Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and the Netherlands like to come to that one. They've got the Alps, but apparently they feel more comfortable in the mountains. Although we have people from New Zealand and Australia come, and the Caribbean come as well. The Canadian people like to come to the one in May because it's at a PGA Championship golf course and they're still frozen and we're pretty and green and the flowers are blooming so they can come early, have discount lodging and play a couple of days of golf and then join us. The people from the Midwest like to come to the one in Wilmington because they have the option of turning left and going 2,000 miles or turning right and going 2,000 miles to see blue water and we have uh, fishing with the best charter uh, captains 
on the coast that available to them That's uh, so that they can come and have good fishing trips down to at the schools we have the best pitmasters in the country and top chefs and we put on 18 hours of cooking classes and then we have uh, hours of uh, uh, intertwined with that we have some judging training and then we actually have uh, judging school at the end of the uh, second day to teach them how to judge with people who have judged who are triple master barbecue judges and have judged over a hundred events so that they can become they exit the school with an 18-hour cookie school diploma and a uh, matching certificate as an NCBS certified barbecue judge and are able to judge any events that we produce and sanction, and we furnish the judges and uh, produce the barbecue and event. I want to I get into the actual judging of barbecue events because that's, that's something we haven't covered. But just as a quick aside, if somebody wants to attend one of your schools or find out more about the North Carolina Barbecue Society, do you have a website? Is there a place they can go? Yes, it's uh, ncbbqsociety.com. ncbbqsociety, ncbbqsociety.com, ncbbqsociety.com. We'll give that out. And yeah, go ahead. At our schools, we only cook with wood and charcoal. No gas, no electricity, except in the kitchen for heating stock pots where we are warming things because when they attend our school, the classes are like 50 minutes, and at each class, the attendees get a sample of whatever it is they're being shown how to fix so they can taste it while they're watching barbecue pitmaster uh, or a five-star chef tell them how to make it. They can actually watch it, and we've got big-screen televisions so that you can see down in the pot just like TV shows, and they can taste what it is that the pitmaster or chef is preparing. Now, Jim Early, I want to get into the criteria for judging barbecue. Obviously, it has to be done on wood. It has to be done without electricity, without gas. But how do you judge what is great barbecue? You're one of the gurus of this passion of this art. When you're judging a competition, because remember, our documentary started trying to judge the ultimate, the Super Bowl of barbecue here in New Orleans. I'm curious, what are what are you looking at, and how do you know, and what is the most importantly intangible that makes the difference between really good barbecue and really great barbecue? Well, traditionally, there's three things that you're going to be looking for. The first is appearance. That's the lightest grade of the total grade. But if if it looks good, if it's appealing to your eye, if you want to eat it, top barbecue is not sexy. I mean, you know, it's kind of like alligators. It tends to all look the same, but it's not. Uh, If it's grayish cast or does it have a brown cast, does it have bark, i.e. skin chopped up with it, which is good if it's served hot. If it's not served hot, skin is not good. It tastes like bubble gum. After the appearance, the grating on appearance, then tenderness, does it chew easily, not mushy? Does it have trash in it, gristle, uncooked skin, whatever? 
So the next higher-weighted part of judging is the tenderness, and then the highest rating is the taste. Now, taste is subjective, and that's what I have to caution in our schools. People who've never had good barbecue would rank average barbecue much higher than someone who's had good barbecue. But you cannot judge the barbecue before you own the plate uh, or parrot where you're judging. You can't judge that barbecue against the best barbecue you've ever, ever eaten at some iconic barbecue pit because that person's not in the judging that day. Their barbecue is not going to be on the palate before you. You need to judge whatever barbecue is before you. And when we teach judging, we allow them to change. We use pencils and they have erasers. We don't use pens. And they can change because there's no way, in my opinion, that you can assign a score to the first barbecue put on your palate in block one, assign it a score, and then you've got nine other offerings put in squares on your palate with 10 squares, how can you know that number one is going to be better than number eight or number 10 or whatever until you've tasted them all? So we let them assign scores as they taste it, and then when they've tasted them all, they can go back and forth, back and forth, and then they're given a three-minute warning that you, if you're straddling the fence on one versus six or whatever, you've got to fish or cut bait. You've got to score one higher than the other and that sort of thing. The tasting part is going to be, again, relative to if you grew up west of Chapel Hill, no one is cooking whole hogs west of Chapel Hill to Tennessee and offering them to the public for a dining experience. Now, some fire station may cook a pig for a fundraiser for a person or whatever and sell it to the public for a day or but. Well, no bits are cooking. Let me ask you about that, because obviously pit barbecue is a very big thing in Memphis. It's a very big thing in northern Alabama. It's a very big thing in Missouri and in Texas. How do you rate the barbecue that goes in other parts of the United States, which is where the competition goes? Well, there again, the folks that frequent the pits are accustomed to that type of barbecue. Uh, they grew up with it. Their parents ate it. Their grandparents ate it. They're also accustomed to the sauce of the particular pit that's their favorite, and everybody's got their favorite. There's a town here in the Piedmont that's got like 39 barbecue places. The population of the county is only 20,000. So everybody's (laughs) got their favorite, and it's kind of like some people with church. They've got their pew. And that's where they sit every Sunday, and they've got their booth in this barbecue. And, and there could be other booths open, but they will wait to get their booth. It's, well, and, and one, one of the uh, things I found around the country is there's general agreement amongst true barbecue purists and those of the historical tradition, whole hog, in the ground, over wood, no electricity, no gas. Where the controversy tends to be is what are you going to base this with? Uh, is it going to be a red sauce, a white sauce? Is it going to be a vinegar-based sauce? Is it going to be this? What What is the essence of North Carolina sauce making, basically? What is, what is, what is the tradition there? 
East of Chapel Hill to the coast is whole hog country. They cook, for the most part, whole hog, chop the whole hog. Uh, the shoulders are dark like thighs on a chicken, and they're more moist. The hams are more grainy, uh, whiter like the breast of a chicken. And then you've got the middling, the back, the ribs, and they chop it all, and it's a wonderful texture. They use a vinegar-based sauce, which is a mild, and they usually use a mild vinegar, uh, some water, some salt, pepper, and some kind of red pepper. And you can light it up in upon the peppers you use. Uh, I found when we cook out of country that everybody doesn't like it spicy, like when we cooked in for the embassy in the Dominican Republic. I found I thought there's I thought they would like spicy food. Mm. They didn't. We had to, so when we did their sauce, we, I found that out. We made our sauce. We had to tone it down, and it was wonderful for them. Not quite as tangy as it would be in most of the pits in eastern North Carolina. The sauce where well, they serve different sides in eastern North Carolina, the sides are more apt to be uh, country cooking vegetables like. Uh, corn pudding, stewed tomatoes, Brundry stew, corn sticks, which are elongated hush puppies, butter beans, that sort of thing. It's potatoes, uh, little red potatoes. West of Chapel Hill, it's baked beans and french fries served with the barbecue, and the barbecue is pork shoulders. And they've taken the eastern North Carolina vinegar-based sauce and put tomato in it, tomato paste, tomato puree, more often it's just plain tomato ketchup. And they've added a sweetener, some sugar, some honey. More often it's brown sugar. And they call it dip. They don't call it sauce. Oh, really? They put it on their chopped slaw and call it, it's red, and they call it barbecue slaw. Eastern North Carolina is a white coleslaw. And in western North Carolina, west of Chapel Hill, it's hush puppies. East of Chapel Hill, it's corn sticks. Some fix hush puppies. Do you think that has to do with, since and we're going to get into the, the roots of barbecue in North Carolina, but do you think that has to do with the way the state was settled, and including, for that matter, the entire eastern seaboard? You had the Tidewater English, the, the southern counties of English that tended to settle along the coast. You had the Scots-Irish that tended to settle closer to Appalachia. In between, you had uh, a few Highlander Scots, and you had several other groups. Do you think those barbecue traditions came with the settlement patterns of North Carolina, and for that matter, the rest of the country? I don't know that that's the case. My theory is that since North Carolina is the cradle of Q, it started on our shores. Contrary to what some other states might claim, and I'll be kind here, but the boats didn't push through to Memphis. They didn't. The boats didn't push through to Texas or Kansas City. To me, North Carolina is home plate. Memphis is first base. Kansas City second base. Texas is third base on the quad of barbecue areas. But the people, in my my opinion, the People who came over the hump when there was the bridge hump to come down, uh, like the, uh, from the Asian folk that came down through top of the Native Americans, basically, and came into the plains, which I think are the ancestors of the plain Native uh, Indians 
they cooked with wood or whatever they could, preferable if if it was available. But they cooked low and slow, uh, low fire, little smoke, because there was a scarcity of wood, and they didn't want their enemies to see their fire. I think those folks with their cooking habits, and I've guided hunting all over that part of the country, they smoke everything. They smoke chickens, pigs, you name it. They migrated to the east and... They were the ones that welcomed the boats that came. And when those boats, they taught them how to cook that way. And when those people that brought the slaves to the area, the Indians taught the slaves how to cook that way. And the slaves were primarily the cooks for the slave owners. And that was how it was done. And when there was the underground railway and slaves were escaping and going north the slaves that were on premise built fires for them and fed them and at times white hunters discovered these fires and the people had fled when they heard them coming and they discovered the meat and they liked it and the black population on the plantations did not have access to the best cuts of meat. They were for the white families that owned them. And so they learned to cook low and slow and tenderize and make the most out of the cuts of whatever they had at their disposal to eat. So I attribute a large part of barbecue as we know it to the black population that did what I just described, and then when they were free, they went on with a mule and a wagon and some cooking apparatus and performed cooking events for uh, white folks at weddings and political rallies and so forth. So I think that the contribution of the black people at that time and to to this day has contributed a lot to what we know as uh, barbecue especially in our part of the world. Jim Early, uh, as we we come to our last couple of questions, I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the roots of the word barbecue? Because I've heard multiple explanations. One of the arguments is it's a Caribbean word, barbacoa, that comes through. Others have made different explanations. Where do you think the word comes from? I've heard all those arguments, and I've read the books, and and I've listened to, quote, experts, close quote, you know, uh, I don't know where it came from. I think Pete Jones would say uh, it's barb is the nose and Q is the tail and everything Everything in between is barbecue. Hmm. Which goes to your arguments about the North Carolina roots a little bit more closely than the Caribbean yeah. roots or what, comes, what would have come out of Spanish territories, Mexico, and come into places like Louisiana and Oz. Well, yeah. yeah, and when you talk to different people in different areas of the country and uh, in the course of my travels for uh, speaking for the North Carolina Bar and guiding hunting and fishing and that sort of thing, I've had the opportunity to eat uh, and talk to people in most of the states. They've got their own opinions and, you know, some of them are pretty passionate about that. And they've got their own taste for barbecue. It's what they grew up with. 
it's just like in writing the book, you know, I could go and get up at four o'clock in the morning and start checking headlights and talking to people and get a list of places to go in that county. And the list depended upon who I talked to. There were reasons for their favorite. It may have been that, you know, they worked in a garage or something, only had a half hour for lunch. And that was the closest place to where they worked. It became their favorite. Um, they may have gotten a, a DWI and were riding a <laughs> moped. They weren't going to go 20 miles across county to eat better barbecue in winter on a moped. <laughs> I, I learned that I was asking as a trial lawyer, you, if you're not getting the answers you want, you're asking the wrong questions often. I learned I was asking the wrong questions. Do you like barbecue fans? Which is, where's your favorite barbecue? Billy Bob's Barbecue in Podunkville, North Carolina. And that's where I was. I was in Podunkville. Uh, Dictations, of course. But those were the reasons. I learned if I said, if I asked the question after you hit the initial threshold, do you like barbecue? And the answer was yes. If I said, if your best friend was having a birthday today, and they love barbecue, and you wanted to treat them on their birthday, where in this county would you take them? You get a different answer. Let me, as we close out, uh, Jim, and of course, everyone can read about this exploration, this great quest you did uh, to find the truest barbecue and the roots of barbecue in North Carolina in your book. Your your book uh, is still available for sale, I assume. No, it's gone. Uh, I, I printed uh, 10 times what I was told was a safe number to print the first time, and we sold out and then did it again. And then I wrote the book, Reflections, the Memories and Recipes of a Southern Cook. And I've written Shining Times, the Adventures and Recipes of a Sportsman. The barbecue book is now only available on eBay. Okay. But as I, is Reflections. As is Reflections. I want to close with something you said in our clip, which, of course, you can watch, folks, at SmokeAndMirrorMovie.com. That's SmokeAndMirrorMovie.com. And in the clip, you talk about how barbecue is the ultimate comfort food, that it's something that not only brings people together, this phenomenon we've, is pretty much ubiquitous in everyone we've talked to. Barbecue brings people together. Barbecue is a social activity. But you take it a step further, and you say, people talk about barbecue to no end in a way they don't talk about pasta or anything else. And I was curious, why is that? Why? I mean, I, I'm married to an ultimate foodie. She runs a spice company and she talks about food. But I have seen that uh, barbecue brings out conversation amongst people who aren't foodies, who aren't these uh, food-obsessed people. They are just regular people, but they'll spend an hour talking about barbecue. That's true. Your observation is correct. They will. Uh, I don't know from a psychological standpoint why that is. Uh, Maybe it's because it was just something really good that they grew up with as a child. I know in eastern North Carolina, all my family worked in, uh, had farms, and tobacco was the money crop. And at the end of the season, when the tobacco was sold at the warehouses to the big tobacco companies and the community had what they call new money meaning 
money for their tobacco and they could pay off the bank for the money they borrowed to put the crop in the field and pay off any other debts, et cetera. In my family, there was celebration and the pigs were cooked for weather purposes. Uh, they were cooked under a shed on the side of a pack barn in the ground uh, with, and there was a big barbecue and a big black iron wash pot with Brunswick stew and homemade cakes and pies. And everybody, black and white, that worked together and their children sat down at picnic tables and shared the barbecue. It was a universal binding agent because Jim Crow laws were in effect then. And after that meal, everybody went back to their own cubbies and resumed their separate lives but at that time it was joy and celebration we did it one more time and the and so uh in the small town where i was born in henderson north carolina population about eleven thousand. you know uh the tobacco people would come through and and they and uh People would hear, the locals would hear from the tobacco buyers that traveled the circuit buying about barbecue places. And it was uh, not unusual for two or three cars, four adults to a car, to drive 60, 80 miles to another town to barbecue at a place on Saturday night because there was precious little to do if you stayed in town. You know, you could go to a movie and see Fred and Ginger Rogers <laughs> dance, but um, that was about it. So barbecue was a big social mixing pot um, for uh, all the different um, socioeconomic levels. And it was a social event for many on Saturday night to go somewhere and eat something different from the hometown barbecue, see what they thought of it can't say yeah. why yeah. it's that way other than it's really it, dang it's really good <laughs> it's affordable it's you know yeah. it's not like eating filet mignon at 22 dollars a pound you know and it was used for political events because it was economically prudent to serve barbecue and and that's um, and and let me let me hit on that because the one thing I've learned as as a historian is the fact that there is a book to be written that says American political history through barbecue. And basically from the, George Washington's campaigns for the House of Burgesses before the revolution all the way through the civil rights movement, the one consistency tends to be barbecue, basically because it was inexpensive and large groups of people could gather. And so, and people liked it and it had emotional connections. And so many political events throughout history, American history, boil down to they met at this barbecue place or they had a barbecue to this and everything else came about it. And it's something that is not often recognized by historians who are looking at the events or the, the big moments or all this, that this one binding element helped define America. That's true. It's universal. In my travels, as a speaker and as a guide and outfitter and all that, you can mention barbecue and you've got an audience and they have opinions and you could say spaghetti and you wouldn't get that response. 
I can't imagine a better way to end. Jim Early of the North Carolina Barbecue Society. If you want to find out more, it's ncbbqsociety.com. And Jim, thank you for joining us and giving us your insights and perspectives and uh, really uh, wisdom here on the Smoke and Mirror podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you much. Take care. More on Jim Early at smokeandmirrormovie.com.